Hey, I'm Gritty Richard. My name is Chiara. I'm Ricky. I'm Tom. And welcome to the Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Welcome to Design Lab Brew Season 3. I'm Gemma. In this season, we will explore how Design Lab offers a platform between technology and society via the unique insights from the creators and facilitators. Get ready to ride the sound waves into some interesting chats and fun commentary. Hi, I'm Tom, and in this episode, Ricky and I will be interviewing Peter Paul Verbeek. He's known in Twente as chair of the philosophy department, co-founder of Design Lab, and renowned for his role of introducing post-phenomenology to the world. Peter Paul has been at the UT for 34 years now, but sadly, as of the 1st of October, he is leaving the UT to become rector magnificus at the University of Amsterdam. We were wondering more about the world of Peter Paul, how he influenced the UT and its students, and in turn, how the students and the UT influenced him. We hope you enjoy the episodes. So, Peter Paul, welcome to the Design Lab Brew podcast. Thanks. Uh, we're very glad having you here. You have uh, done a lot of podcasts, but never at uh, Design Lab Brew, but we're yeah. glad that <laughs> just <enough>. in the <laughs> last month, or <laughs> what it is, we, we are having you. And, um, yeah, that's great. So for the people at home, I'm Tom. Uh, I'm part of the dream team and the tech team in Design Lab. I study industrial design engineering. And uh, yeah, this is the first interview I'm doing as part of Design Lab Brew. And uh, next to me is Ricky. Hello, I'm Ricky, uh, also part of the dream team and um, also studying industrial design engineering. And I'm going to be co-interviewing with Tom. Excited to do so. Yeah. And I don't know if we need to give uh, Peter Paul an introduction. He's been here so long uh, at the UT. 34, was it? 34 years at the University of Twente is bizarre. <laughs> but I started as a student, so that's also yeah. included in those 34 years. <laughs> okay. But now I'm working as a professor of philosophy of technology here at the university and one of the co-directors of the, of the design lab. Hmm. Until October 1, then I will move to the University of Amsterdam to become the rector there. So yeah, that's uh, it. a very nice time in Twente ends for me yeah. with sadness in my heart, but also excitement, of course, about Amsterdam. Mm. Ooh, that's, a, that's a long career indeed, 44 years. So you start as a, as a, as a student here. Always leaves me wondering, how were you as a, as a student here? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, um, when I came 34 years ago, right? not 44. I thought you said 44. <laughs> I'm, I'm not that old yet. <laughs> Uh, I was 17 years old, uh, really young. I came from uh, the southern part of the of the Netherlands, and uh, yeah, I think I basically came here because I simply could not choose between doing a program in the humanities or in engineering. And there was a combination here in Twente that I liked: philosophy of science, technology, and society. It still exists, but it was a Dutch program uh, back then. Uh, and yeah, uh, how was I? I think uh, I was super active in culture. I played piano a lot, uh, so I played the piano at uh, the stand-up comedy association there, and uh, I performed, and we had a, a jazz combo and a blues band, and uh, so that, that's uh, yeah. I think I I spent a lot of time there, and we had a nice group of friends with whom we always had uh, drinks on uh, Thursdays and uh -huh. Saturday evenings in, in the Bolwerk in Enschede. It's still a group of friends that, that's there. Uh, we still see each other quite often. So yeah, I, I look back at it as a very engaged time uh, in which I also could really develop everything uh, <laughs> that I'm still building on right now. Mm, that's nice. Yeah. And uh, so, so you were 
not always in your books as a student also having not at all. <laughs> no, no. But uh, back then you could take a bit more time. Uh, so it was a five-year program. That's mm -hmm. a, and uh, I took six, okay. <laughs> uh, which was also really cool. I, th I think, uh, yeah, you really need to develop other things in yourself mm -hmm. than only the academic part. And uh, Twente is just a great city to study. I mean, uh, the campus is uh, wonderful. Uh, the, the size of the university is just perfect, I think. It's uh, big enough to be diverse, small enough to be uh, a home, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So, uh, yeah, I had a, a really nice time here. And of course, my luck was that the field that I'm still active in developed in those days. Mm, so yeah. uh, Hans Achterhuis then came here as a professor. He is, um, I think, 79 or 80 years old now. So he has retired uh, a long time ago. But he was really the one who gave the, uh, well, the, the, the first impetus to develop and this whole new field in Twente, philosophy of technology. I mean, it's a field that existed already uh, in other places, but it was only individuals who were doing that. And suddenly here in Twente and also in Delft back then, uh, it, it started to, uh, to grow. Okay. So I also felt like being a part of a pioneering movement or something. Yeah, so when I got the chance to also do my PhD in that field, I thought, wow, <laughs> this is wonderful to do your PhD in such a field that is so new. You can really uh, ask all new kinds of questions. Yeah. Did you always intend to do a PhD here or to go into the academic world? It just happened to me. Maybe that's also a bit of the story of my life <laughs> in a sense. Not that I don't uh, uh, have any ambition to go somewhere, but I think it was a tough choice to go to Twente. But uh, when I did that, when I was 17, it was just the perfect choice for me hmm. because I didn't need to choose between these two fields. I could do both. It was societally engaged, which I also found super important. And all the other steps after that here in Twente just followed quite naturally. Yeah, so when I was almost done with my PhD, uh, there was an opening for an assistant professor and I could get that and on. Okay. And, uh, <laughs> in the end, I developed into a distinguished professor with my own budget to develop new ideas and to, yeah, to, to, to look for new places to uh, develop. That's a great journey. Yeah. So you say it, it developed all naturally and uh, it, it, it went easy in that sense maybe to grow uh, as, a, as a professor, but I imagine there were also quite some hardships or sure, hurdles sure. along the way. No, definitely. So I think um, it was also a time to develop a new approach to technology. The classical philosophy of technology was quite conservative and negative, and I really felt that that was totally at odds with what I find here at the University of Twente. Yeah, where people are really very societally engaged. Uh, it's full of ethics everywhere. So I thought the picture doesn't work. So I think my PhD tried to open a new perspective on technology. But then when that was done, I really had a few years in which I had no idea what to do. I was teaching a bit and uh, I had to develop a new research line. It simply didn't work. I still recall very well that Hans Achterhuis back then, my professor then uh, said, okay, there's this new funding scheme in the Netherlands with the Veni Vidi Vici grants and uh, maybe you should write a Veni application. The, the deadline is tomorrow. <laughs> 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 so then we uh, had uh, pizzas at his place and uh, good wine. It, it, it was odd, but I just uh, pressed it all out and, uh, and I got it. That's great. And I think that was the beginning of a whole line of research about uh, what I've come to call technical mediation, uh, how technologies become mediators of morality, of science, of our understanding of the world, of ourselves, of what it means to be human. 
And yeah, so after these three years of uh, not knowing uh, where to go, suddenly <laughs> there was a route. Yeah, and, uh, yeah that, that, that was wonderful. Yeah, so just do the things that you love to do and some opportunity will come up and yeah, yeah. see where it's going. And That's I would also nice. say anyone who has a leadership role, spot the people around you who, who don't know what to do <laughs> and try to stimulate them to find what they want to do. I think if Hans had not done that, I might have had a totally different uh, uh, time here in, uh, in Twente. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. So you had your period where you, uh, you didn't know what to do, opportunity came up. You got your um, rainy, hmm? you know? your, your rainy, <laughs> yeah, and then you didn't become a professor instantly. Uh. No, no, no. So uh, I actually don't know the years anymore. But at some point, um, I got promoted to associate professor, just the usual path. Yeah. And, and then I won a vidi, and then I became full professor, and then I also got a vici, which also shows actually how unfair the system is. I mean, mm. I do believe that the applications that I wrote were good, but there were many good applications. And I think yeah. simply the fact that you had already uh, a veni or a vidi helps uh, the reviewers to think, oh, probably he can do a vici as well. Mm. So it is an unfair system. It's actually a system that I'm hoping to work a bit against okay. <laughs> so that I will have more <laughs> opportunity to also uh, play a role in, uh, in that discussion. But uh, yeah, it was uh, fantastic actually to, to get the chance to, to do all these uh, things and yeah. to really develop new philosophical ideas to hire people uh, rather than uh, yeah, um, having hardly any research time because that's also what is a fact at the BMS faculty. I mean, there is not so much time for research. So basically you have 70%, 80% teaching time, which is great. Eh? So mm -hmm. the, uh, I, I love teaching, but you also need time to, to develop your own research. Yeah. yeah. So that's your, your research path there. But also at some point you uh, identified this, this opportunity or this need for something new, something that uh, didn't come on your path, but that you, together with some colleagues, you, you co-founded the design lab. Absolutely. So how, <laughs> did, how did that look? Great, great. Yeah, so I think that there was, uh, in the time that I was working on my Vici, and uh, to be honest, the Vici was super good, but at the same time I also felt that it was again such a big grant, and again super high expectations, and again the same type of, of thing, so it also felt like, hmm, will I like this until I retire. Yeah. <laughs> and then there was a, a, a big energy between uh, Vanessa Evers, Marcia van der Voort and myself, uh, with Vanessa uh, as the initiator of, of it all, uh, to find a place where the identity of the University of Twente could flourish in a new way. I mean, the UT has always been this university for technical and social sciences, as it used to be called in the early days, or the, the two yeah. core universities, or the, the entrepreneurial university, high-tech human touch, but they have, they have had many names. Yeah. It was always about science, technology, and society combined. And then we felt that there was a place missing where, first of all, uh, you could work between faculties without having the feeling that you are actually in one of the faculties that also allows other people to participate, and neutral ground or something. Uh, and two, that we also needed a place where societal questions can be first. Uh, not uh, only with the frame, as some people back then said, eh, that you're just doing applied work. I don't know what's wrong with applied work, by the way. <laughs> but uh, where also societal questions can be the beginning of new academic questions, eh, where the, yeah, the whole boundary between science and society gets uh, blurred. Yeah, and we were super lucky that this part of the building where we are now 
uh, was available back then, and that the university board back then had uh, trust in us, and that they said, okay, go and take the old furniture that we have in the basement uh, and hire some students if you want to uh, refurbish <laughs> that, that part of the building. So we, we all had to do it in a, in a few weeks during the summer holiday. And then there we went. Yeah, it was super exciting. I think f for me, uh, if I look back on my time at Twente, maybe the most rewarding thing, because we really managed to uh, get a, a model uh, working of connecting science, technology and society that, well, that works super well. That also really uh, is a bottom-up, so uh, from societal questions, students are in charge of uh, the daily business here. Uh, and that also uh, is so popular that all the universities started to copy it and starting to get inspired by it. So, uh, yeah, I'm proud of that. That's great. Really. Yeah. And do you think the Design Lab has achieved its original goals already or does it still have a way to go? Yeah. Uh, both, <laughs> I think. I mean, it definitely has managed to uh, be this uh, interfaculty platform for exciting new work. Uh, and uh, it, had, it has also proven to be able to uh, establish a new model of connecting science and society. Yes. But of course, there's always uh, more work to be done. I think, um, I mean, the, the fact that we are in this building, which is not formally a universal mm -hmm. university building, gives us this free space to move. And the normal rules do not always apply for us. And that experimentation ground that we are uh, forces us also to stay ahead of developments and to, to, to make sure that, that, yeah, that we can start new things. And if you now see how things work regarding uh, citizen science, for instance, or trust in science, uh, I, I think we have a very important role now in helping uh, to restore trust by connecting science and society more in, well, intricately, by, by enabling people not just to, uh, to see how, how cool science is or something, but really to, 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 to understand what we are struggling with and to participate in it, to see that they can trust it, they have a reason to do that. So I think that that, that whole discussion that we now see in our country uh, about nitrogen, for instance, and we had about vaccines. That, that whole discussion, I think, requires places like Design Lab yeah. to, uh, yeah, find new models. Yeah, and so you um, you had this vision originally for Design Lab with your co-founders, and I was wondering, did it play out like the way you imagined, or what what did D Design Lab teach you uh, about starting up such oh, a project? A lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think. Such a thing can never be done by one individual. You can have a vision, but um, I, I learned so much from Masha and from Vanessa, it's incredible. I think Masha is really good in uh, organizing things and in really understanding from her design experience how you can connect to societal organizations, societal partners, uh, and Vanessa also, all her energy also working with companies. Uh, I could never have done that either. <laughs> so I think it was really the energy between the three of us uh, that enabled us not only to have nice ideas, as I always have as a philosopher, <laughs> but I can't make them work. <laughs> and then some people can really make it work, know how to connect to societal partners. Yeah, yeah. so teaming up and collaborating together, it allows you to do great things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you, as a philosopher, you developed the post 
post phenomenology. <laughs> it is a tongue twister. <laughs> approach. <sorry. laughs> okay, I'll say mediation, yeah. mediation theory. <laughs> better, better. <laughs> that was easier. So, has this uh, this vision um, from philosophy? How did that help you shape uh, the design lab together with your ah, co-founders? Well, I think maybe the reason that I uh, was engaged uh, in post phenomenology. Uh, well, the, the fact that I was engaged in it was also a reason to uh, step into Design Lab, right? So my whole approach in philosophy of technology has always been that we have to think from technology. And don't try to understand technology as a way of thinking or a way of interpreting the world, but we have to think really about the concrete te technologies in our society and ask ourselves what they do, how, how they affect us, how they change how we think, how we do ethics, etc. Which is a complicated thing philosophically because mm -hmm. you have to uh, speak uh, about technology with the words that we normally use for humans. <laughs> yeah. uh, humans do things, things don't do things, right? Um, so that's the philosophical puzzle. But the practical thing is that as soon as you understand how technologies help to shape society, you can also take responsibility for it. And then immediately you speak about designing. So post phenomenology uh, with a big word as an approach to understanding human technology relations was a very good basis to uh, work with designers to anticipate societal issues uh, regarding technologies. That's also how I met Masha, because I looked a lot uh, for collaboration with industrial design. Uh, also in my PhD uh, the, the, uh, book, th th there's one chapter about design and how to apply philosophy in design. I think we were still speaking about applying philosophy in design. I, I would say it completely differently now. But um, yeah, that's quite a natural connection, I think. And then the nice thing that happened is that um, the two fields grew towards each other, I think. I mean, design discovered quite early already, earlier than the philosophers, that it's good to ask people in society what they think. Yeah, it started in companies. Yeah, why would Nike know better what a customer wants than the customer mm. themselves? Yeah, so co-design became quite normal, and that developed into some kind of a democratization of design, bottom-up thinking, which is actually something that I'm trying to do within philosophy as well, based on post phenomenology. It's, it's really great that you can see that uh, how, uh, from the perspective of post phenomenology, how technology influences society and how you, you can design for that. But I'm also wondering, is there something from the mediation theory, because I think many students here at the UT, they get taught it in, the, in their classes and they think, oh, philosophy, it's some kind of theory. Is there also some, some practical thing that can be applied to, to a personal life, looking from uh, mediation theory, post-phenomenology, maybe also that it helps you to look at things personally from a different perspective? Wow, beautiful question. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the whole idea of mediation theory is that uh, humans are not as autonomous and as free as they think. Yeah, so we think that we use technologies as tools and we have the goals and technologies are the means. But as soon as we use technologies, they start to influence us as, as well. We are not in charge. Even the goals that we had to use the technologies can change by using these technologies. Our ethical frameworks change because we use technology. And I think in my personal life that can also help that you recognize that uh, the people you meet, the place where you work also, is a medium between you and the world. It helps you to understand the world in a very specific way. Maybe now with my move to the University of Amsterdam after such a long time here, already works a bit like that, that you start to see the world differently. You start to see academic questions differently, political questions also at universities. 
as soon as you see them through the eyes of an organization, that, that yeah, that somehow helps to shape your, <laughs> your connection with the world around you. So you think this is a great thing, a great perspective, and uh, you want the whole world to see that, or you start, <laughs> uh, uh, you start infiltrating the <laughs> University of Amsterdam in a sense, and uh, bring them? No, <laughs> no so it, it, I, I don't think uh, that this mediation theory approach uh, should be followed by everyone. I hope that uh, maybe in 10 years from now, the word will not even be used anymore. There will be a new generation. Yeah. But it has been a very helpful way for myself to find a different language to speak about technologies, which is both academically interesting, uh, because it raises a lot of fundamental uh, uh, questions. I'm, I'm actually still trying to finish a book. I will probably not get it done before I go to Amsterdam, which develops the whole theory of mediation in relation to the work of Kant, so the, the, the big old philosopher. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, it's very practical. It, 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 well, that, that's why the design lab can uh, also, um, yeah, uh, came in, in my life <laughs> as, as a place where this, uh, these ideas would be relevant. So I like it, but I also really like to be criticized and I like people to think for themselves. So also, when I teach, if I teach mediation theory, I always say that don't let yourself be bothered by the fact that one of the people who has developed this is now teaching it to you. <laughs> see it as a way to see that it's just a human being doing this and uh, that you can uh, always criticize and be as, you as sharp as you can. sometimes get criticized or challenged by students with a question that makes you think uh, of mediation theory of, oh, I hadn't thought about this. Oh, or yeah, this all, is all the time. Okay. No, that, and <laughs> that's the great thing of teaching. <coughs> so that's, I think that's why I never understand people who say that they don't want to teach, they only want to do research. I think teaching is a vital element of doing research. Uh, and also for students, I think it's really nice to, to, to hear the state of the art in a specific research project. And then you get criticism or new ideas. I think, wow, there are many things. I mean, mediation theory, post technology started out really as a theory about individual humans and technologies. Okay. And the first line of critique was always, where is politics? Where is society? You're so naive. You, you just ignore that there are the big tech companies who also play a role. And so we started to make room for, for that. I, I really found it a very good type of critique. And at some point people said, okay, now you have investigated what humans, uh, what technologies do to humans, but actually humans also actively integrate technologies in their lives. And that has an influence on how technologies affect them. So isn't it too simplistic that things do something, humans do something too, and we need to study the interaction. So we have been expanding the theory all the time yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, without teaching and especially also without PhD students, I would never have been able to do that. Actually, follow-up question uh, to the mediation theory. Would you see this um, influence in a positive way the future, wherein more people understand how technology influences them um, where they previously would not have? And this could go in a similar direction to food labels where all uh, maybe technologies have kind of like a warning of, oh, well, using it in such a way will result in this, and this is backed up by science, and um, could you see it going that direction, and would you say that's a good thing, bad thing, that more people understand uh, how technology affects right. them? Wow, wow. Yeah, so indeed, I would say the work that I've been doing through Design Lab over the past years was all about uh, empowering people in society to think more critically about technologies and to see the normative and the whole political dimension of technology. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure if the best way to go would be to have a label with every new technology, say, hey, this could influence your social relations, this could influence your political view. 
maybe sometimes it would, but I think more at the level of uh, education, also at uh, secondary schools, uh, at universities, teaching uh, students that technologies are not neutral, that they always mediate, that they change, and not just how you behave, but that they really change how you think, how you judge, even your ethics can get influenced by the technologies that you'd also try to evaluate with that very ethics. <laughs> I think that's a part of citizenship education, you could call it, civic education, that I think has become super important. When we started to do these things, it was maybe something odd and some kind of niche thing to say. But I think since the digital revolution really took off, it has become quite normal. I mean, AI ethics is all over the place. Mm -hmm. uh, people are worried about robotics. Uh, so the idea that technologies are ethically significant and also politically significant uh, is, is not weird anymore. So I think, yeah, time has changed. And um, I hope that these ideas, not specifically this mediation theory, um, there are other theories as well, but this way of thinking about technology as something societal and not only something technical, that will uh, be integrated more in education. Yeah. yeah, it's very interesting also how the technology has influenced you as a person uh, to develop this further and this, this uh, became a very fertile ground for you for research and developing your theories. So suppose this wouldn't have been the case. Where do you think you would have ended up otherwise if you wouldn't have taken this path? Ooh, I would have become a musician, I think. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> it's also I, I really played a lot of piano. I, I, I don't spend as much time on it anymore as I used to do until, let's say, five or ten years ago. But I'm quite a fanatic uh, uh, player. And uh, I really had a hard time choosing, uh, in, in the first place also, between the conservatory and university. And then, of course, when I went to university, it was hard to choose between humanities and engineering. But uh, I think I might have ended up as a, as a piano teacher probably by now. Then. I'm not sure <laughs> if I would have been good enough to be a concert hall player. <laughs> so so how, how, did, how do you, how does Peter Paul make these choices? Yeah, that's super hard. Um, I find it hard to make choices. I think this choice was really on my intuition. And uh, I, at some point you just uh, follow your heart. You follow what makes you feel... In, in harmony or something. And this is, you're not overly enthusiastic and also not overly pessimistic. You think, okay, if I do this, it, it feels quiet. <laughs> yeah, so with my choice uh, to go to Amsterdam, that was basically the same thing. It's a super hard decision. I mean, I, I like Twente so much. I, I am Twente. <laughs> yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I'm a product of Twente and I had the luxury to help shape the, uh, this a very nice university, so there's nothing in me that, that, that thinks, oh, now, now it's time to go. But still, then, this opportunity comes on your path, and it's also maybe, uh, at some point, I thought, there's something in myself that I also would like to develop further. Uh, even though I like my work a lot, and I could still do it until I'm 75, I, I think it's also great to see other opportunities. Added to the fact that um, the University of Amsterdam was also really looking for someone uh, who uh, likes to connect science and society and also likes to be a, a, a visible and active academic and bring that also to, to the boardroom. Wow, well, maybe it's time to jump. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I also uh, read that or I heard that maybe in another interview that you felt like, uh, yeah, your development here, you, you did a lot of things uh, yeah, in academics and starting up the design lab. Do you also feel like your, your work here in Twente is done after oh, these no. 34 years? Not at all. <laughs> no, no, I think, uh, no, I mean, this university has so much potential. 
uh, I think the whole route that we took now with uh, uh, shaping 2030 is a very important one. I don't like the slogan, uh, people first, I must say. I mean, uh, especially not if you say the ultimate people first university, it sounds too much like Donald Trump to me. It is mm. neoliberal, we are the best, we are the winners. <laughs> I, I hate that, <laughs> to be honest. But the whole idea that we put society first, that we start from society, and that that is not something that goes against academic freedom, but that actually is an incentive to raise exciting, interesting scientific questions that are also, well, engaged with our society, I think it's super important. And uh, yeah, the next step for me at the UT, I think would have been to see if this could be linked much more to the current crisis in our democracy. And it's, uh, I said it before in this interview, but I think this is a very important time. Uh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm really worried about it. Eh? We have a huge, yeah, how to say, divide in our society between people yeah. who are really uh, turning their back against the government, distrust the government, uh, and it's a very hard frame to fight against. Uh, so, uh, the, uh, the, well, the current model of representation in our democracy that you just go out for a vote every now and then simply is not enough. I think the only answer can be co-creation, co-design. I think design thinking, what we do here in Design Lab, bottom-up thinking, not the experts telling people what to do, but listening to people and helping those people as an expert to articulate it. I think that's what we need. So to, to scale up towards a societal level, uh, maybe towards also fields like public administration in a, in, in a new way, I think that, yeah, that would have been a challenge that I would have wanted to take up if I had not gone to Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> but then I guess there becomes some, co some kind of vacancy because uh, you're not here anymore and it's for the whole university for, uh, for us to fill up that vacancy as students. So what, what kind of advice would you have uh, for uh, yeah, the, the university, the, the students following up uh, as kind of your, your legacy here wow. uh, for the future? <laughs> well, first of all, I should say there's no need to somehow protect my legacy. I did no. my thing and everybody is doing their own thing. So uh, I'm happy that I have been able to do what I did and when I'm gone, uh, it's over. <laughs> but what I hope is that uh, people who are uh, in charge of Design Lab, and I'm totally sure that it will be like that, that they uh, keep that uh, spirit of, uh, yeah, I say connection. Maybe that's it. I think that's what the Design Lab is. If there's one word to summarize it, it's the connections between all the academic fields and disciplines, and also persons with their own uh, ways of being in the world. Uh, on the one hand, and also connecting the university to societal issues. So that also means sensitivity. What's at play? What are the, the main discussions that we uh, have here in our society now? I learned a lot from also being uh, in societal organizations beside my work, from being mm. uh, the vice chair of the Rathenau Institute board that advises parliament about science policy, innovation policy, and from being at UNESCO. Uh, all those things uh, give you a sensitivity for what's at stake in society. I think also that connection is super important to uh, keep the design lab at the, at the front edge. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think that's uh, pretty good advice or what I was looking to gain uh, from the answer. Yes, so earlier you brought up the parallel um, between uh, designers and design thinking in the governments and how, um, uh, yeah, and the need for a bottom-up way of thinking uh, where you incorporate and include all stakeholders. Um, studying at the university, I see this happening currently where we have, um, for example, in our study, there's a co-design module where, and project where we design with um, and directly, yeah, dynamically or 
continuously with um, uh, co-designer. And but I was wondering how uh, one could apply this to governments or how because it it just seems a bit more. Um, they, I guess they they seem a bit further out there where um, they may not feel the need to listen to everyone's opinion, or at least that's how it how it seems. Yeah, yeah, true. So it is typically not about designing something concrete. Sometimes it is making policy or, or something. Sometimes it isn't. But then still, I think you can um, listen carefully to the concerns in in society. One of my favorite examples is still the ethical evaluation that we did here in Design Lab for the COVID contact tracing app that we have here in the Netherlands, the Corona Melder. And so at some point I got involved in an advisory committee uh, to, to, to think about that app and then we were asked to uh, well, write an ethical advice for the parliament to make a decision about uh, whether or not we should have such an app. And there was a lot of societal concern about privacy. So people felt maybe the government knows where everyone is because it has to detect the proximity between people. Will they know your location, etc.? So there was a whole privacy-sensitive design team that designed the app in such a way that, uh, well, there was no way to find out who was even infected and where they were. But still, there was concern, and I then uh, chaired a team of ethicists to write an ethical study, and it was all about the individual. It should be voluntary, and you should have the autonomy to, to say no, etc. That worked, but then I thought maybe if we follow the design lab logic, we also need to hear what people in society really think. The public discourse was dominated by intellectuals who were worried about privacy, but in society you hear other voices. So we then had a session with somebody working at the marketplace, a police officer, a swimming pool owner, a sports school owner, the FC Twente director. And they had the Twente norberschap feeling, the, how do you translate it into English, something like community feeling or something. And interestingly, they said, oh, wow, when they saw the, the, the first run of the design, which was not uh, in our society yet, and they said, oh, if, if this is going to be the app, then, then I don't want it, because I do want to share my location, because I want to help the government to fight COVID, and I do want to share my contact list, because I, I want my family members and my friends to be informed right away if I get COVID. And so this was all in, in the first month of the pandemic, so people were super afraid of it. And then I thought, wow, this is really interesting. <laughs> yeah, so if you uh, reverse the perspective, you see that ethics uh, has lost touch with the concerns of people in our society. This is the basis for distrust. So, uh, well, a, a long answer, <laughs> but I think this is what we need, new ways to simply give a voice to people more than going out for a vote every now and then. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, looking now to the to the bigger picture, this will be our final interview, and I'd like to <laughs> talk uh, a long time about these these issues. But yeah, you're going to to Amsterdam. Uh, it will be a new arena for you. Will you try to create a bit of the UT arena in uh, Amsterdam? <laughs> uh, will you start a design lab there? <laughs> I will definitely not uh, call it a design lab if I <laughs> would get such an idea. And the idea that I could start something is also not adequate at all. Of course, it's yeah. always teamwork. But uh, when I bring the UT to Amsterdam, I, I don't think that's my ambition. I would rather put it upside down. I think the fact that I come from the UT was a reason for the University of Amsterdam to like to hire me. 
Not that they were looking for somebody from the UT, but I see a lot of similarities between the DNA of the University of Amsterdam and the UT. And that is deep societal engagement and a very high ambition. Yeah, so people like to work hard and to, to do excellent work, but it's also society driven. That's quite unique. Amsterdam has always had that as a very progressive university, a red university, as they always said. Uh, and uh, of course, that identity has also changed, over the, just like uh, the entrepreneurial university that Twente once was has also changed. But behind it is very strong societal engagement, and that's really the perfect match, I think, uh, between what I can bring from Twente and what the University of Amsterdam is. Okay, so the University of Amsterdam already has this societal engagement. Uh, you are from Twente, you have this as well. So what are you then bringing to, <laughs> the, to the University <laughs> what is of new? Amsterdam? Maybe uh, I will have to find out, by the way. <laughs> so I, I don't know the university um, that uh, good already, that well already. But I think um, what I hope to bring is um, a focus on interdisciplinary work. Of course, it is already there, but you can strengthen it. Uh, trying to see if we could start from societal challenges and a program research based on that. If, if that could work a bit, it would be great. But again, I, I really have to get to know the University of Amsterdam much better. And I also don't think that my main ambition is to, to change things there radically. I think uh, it's a good sign that the, the, the DNA of Amsterdam uh, uh, looks like <laughs> the, the DNA of um, Twente. In Twente, I have been able to do meaningful things, and uh, that gives me also the trust, <laughs> the confidence, maybe, that I could do meaningful things. Well, yeah. But good to hear. Uh, in, in a sense, it sounds to me like you're trying to bring another design lab there, or <laughs> giving it another name, but uh, on, a, on a bigger scale. Make the whole university design lab. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I think to finish up, uh, we should tackle one more question. Um, uh, we also had some questions about, uh, yeah, we asked some people what they would be interested in. And actually, uh, I identify a lot with this question. It seems like you did a lot of things and you're still doing a lot of things. Uh, academics in design lab, um, chairing many organizations and now going to the University of Amsterdam. Um, big function as uh, Rector Magnificus. Uh, also traveling there, I think, uh, every day from, uh, from Enschede. <laughs> how, how do you manage all this? <laughs> wow, I think by uh, uh, liking very much what you do, that's maybe one uh, thing, but also uh, by um, having a very uh, nice private life as well. <laughs> I think that always keeps you in balance. I mean, we have four children and many people have asked me, how can you manage four children? <laughs> it's totally the other way around. If you don't have kids, you think that your work is super important and you only work. <laughs> but with four kids, kids are always more important. And so it really helps you not to get overworked. I think it puts things into the right perspective. And of course, with my partner, my wife, Annette, uh, yeah, we, have, we, have a, we are a very good team. Uh, for, for her, it also has big implications that I will move to Amsterdam now. Yeah. She works at Utrecht, so the, the, the last uh, seven or eight years or something, I have always been able to make sure that there could be someone for the children here in Enschede if uh, she couldn't be there. But yeah, now it has changed, <laughs> it, it will change. So it's also a uh, big change. But the fact that it works so well uh, makes it possible to, uh, to make that choice. That's great to hear. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't think that advice will be that applicable for, for the students here, maybe. 
uh, to take some <laughs> at this age. <laughs> okay. One important advice that I would give to students would be uh, to make sure you, you do not only focus on one thing. Make sure that there are other uh, important things in your life that make your life worth living. And also, when I was a PhD student, I worked for one day a week as a piano player in a theater company. Uh, just because I, I liked it, of course, but, and I mean, also because it puts things into perspective. So if you are really only following one path, then you almost become neurotic about being successful in that one path. Mm. You cannot let it go and uh, have the room to be creative and to develop yourself a bit. I think if, if, if you are always open for something else also, then your energy will flow much more smoothly. Yeah, that's nice. I think it also nicely connects with what you said about maybe I would have become a full-time piano player, yeah, exactly. piano teacher. So you keep your option open, you do multiple things and then you just go with the flow, what works best, where, um, yeah, where, where you feel you, you are yeah. needed. Yeah. Go deep, but don't get stuck. So you still play the piano uh, every, every now and then? Yeah, yeah, maybe not every day anymore, <laughs> but I still do it. And a good friend of mine uh, plays the violin, so together we sometimes play tango or Bach or... Uh, uh, and uh, all my kids play music actually, so sometimes we play together. It's uh, really, really nice. And just for myself, I also just sometimes play with a blues or something. It's cool. Yeah, I would love to hear you play the piano once. I, I know we have a, a piano here. Yeah, in maybe. The, uh, <laughs> design lab. With my farewell, maybe I could okay. <laughs> make a design lab blues. It's yes. <laughs> <laughs> very nice. Yeah. Um, okay, so uh, thanks a lot, uh, Peter Paul, for sitting here with us uh, and you. for your very interesting uh, perspective on things and your career path and uh, how you look to things in society. I hope it will be inspiring uh, for, the, for the students. And um, uh, I want to wish you the best of luck in, uh, in Amsterdam. And um, I'm curious to your farewell symposium. I'll definitely be there. Uh, <laughs> great. Thanks for the interview. It was really nice. That's great. Yeah.